Welcome back. It's another Red Star Radio interview today, and I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, Matteo Capasso, who is the author of uh, a book on Libya entitled Everyday Politics in the Libyan Arab Jamaharia. And today we're going to be talking about, of course, the, the legacy of uh, the revolutionary period in Libya and uh, Muammar al-Gaddafi and the after effects of his overthrow. Your book interested me, and I wanted to talk to you about it uh, for a number of reasons, um, uh, principally because, as I, I think it's a, a point that you're making in, in the book, um, that the the identification of Libya just with the, the person of yeah. Muammar al-Gaddafi, and yeah. this is something that I mean, I, I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, and Libya became synonymous with Gaddafi. It was like he yeah. was the only Libyan. So in in writing this, did you want to um, specifically uh, deconstruct that myth and get away from it? Thanks for your question, Alex. I mean, and thanks for your kind words about the book. Um, I, I mean, I guess we probably grew up during the same time, and... Um, and it wasn't particularly clear to me from the start what was happening in 2011, mm. when uh, let's say the some some popular protests started, and then in a very short span of time, you know, NATO intervened, the country was literally you know destroyed, but we were you know we we kept uh, receiving this propaganda saying that NATO was helping uh, the rebels and the liberators and the revolutionaries on the ground. At the same time, uh, you know, you could call it a conceptual subtext. So you have three main, uh, uh, three main categories, hypotheses, uh, whatever terms you prefer, that they basically uh, uh, keep coming relentlessly, constantly, to explain the Libya's destruction, Libya's fragment fragmentation, and also the reasons why people went out on the street. Mm. One of them is this idea of Libya not having any kind of state. It's, you know, they call it statelessness. Mm. The country has never developed modern state structure since the colonial Italian colonial time. And then in 1969, Kairi comes this authoritarian one-man uh, Muammar Gaddafi who wants to manipulate the tribes via the oil revenues, which, you know, uh, for those who are familiar with some of this academic jargon, it's called uh, rent, rentire state theory. Yes. And uh, at the same time, you know, these oil revenues do not only allow him to control and manipulate this tribal, uh, you know, society, uh, which, you know, is paradoxically so like uncontrollable. But it also allows him to go and become a menace, a threat to the liberal international order. Yeah. So basically, NATO comes in, the intervention is needed, and is successful to help the rebels to oust this uh, authoritarian regime. But, you know, unfortunately, NATO ends up lacking a plan for the so-called day after. Hmm. So the book, yes, the book basically speaks against this backdrop. The book really tries to, you know, to, to, you know, to take a stop and say, why are we conflating an entire country with one man? Mm. How convenient is to do so? And are there other alternatives to look at Libya? Alternative viewpoints to look at Libya. And yes. uh, and so this is where I where I started. Yeah. Yes, and I think that's a a very refreshing approach, given the uh, the narrative that we were fed, certainly in Britain at the time. Mm -hmm. And you, you will be aware, of course, having researched this, that the 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 hysterical coverage of the um, the Libyan government under Gaddafi in Britain was, of course, in part motivated by a feeling that, of course, British imperialism had lost an ally when um, Old King Idris was deposed. And of course, um, Gaddafi's association um, with the Irish Republican movement as well um, yes. enraged the British ruling class. Um, in fact, I think nothing makes them more angry than Irish Republicanism. Um, <laughs> so um, let, if we go back and just start with a brief historical sketch then, Matteo, yeah. um, the history of the Libyan state um, it is an Ottoman territory, I think I'm right in saying, with a sort of semi-independent basis until 
the Italian successful Italian invasion in 1911. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. And the Italian colonial period uh, was one that actually, like all the colonialists in Africa, um, saw an awful lot of um, repression carried out by the Italian uh, colonizers in order to what you would call in modern language pacify the a resistant population. Um, right. Is that a fair way of categorizing it? Absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah, without yeah. without thinking that a recent book by a Libyan scholar Ali Ahmeda, which must be mentioned, is actually showing also that the Italians were using concentration camps in Libya. But mm. obviously, you know, we know when we talk about concentration camps, Europe can only think about a certain story and is not willing to face others. Well, I mean, it's a brief diversion, but one of the assertions that I make a lot on the my the programs that we do here is that Hitler's biggest well Hitler's two biggest crimes in the view of the European and British ruling classes is one that he didn't win and two <laughs> that um he brought the um the colonial methods pioneered by Britain, France, Italy, Germany and others he brought those into Europe itself and made them obvious. Exactly. Yeah. Um so to return to return to the subject of Libya, so we we see that um, Libya, of course, remains an Italian colony until, of course, um, the Italian state under the leadership of um, the Italian fascist party and Benito Mussolini is on the losing side of World yeah. War Two, and this then proceeds to be um, come. It's a country that comes more under British imperialist influence mm -hmm. with the imposition of the monarchy after World War Two. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And so the you can you can tell that there is a British influence there because of course the uh, one of the uh, the founding um, uh, should we say um, examples that Gaddafi himself used to give as to why he became radicalized was his experience going through training at British military camps and he he tells the story about how he faced uh, racism and prejudice there. So can yes. you talk a little bit about the um the free officers movement that um, Gaddafi was a part of and how that came to power in 1969. Yeah. Um, your intro was absolutely correct, your contextual best background. So Libya becomes this sort of semi-independent state under the premise of the United Nations plan. Obviously, it's just divided in spheres of influence and the British ruling class and British and French imperialism and partly Italian still operating control the country. They put what we would uh, call without any, uh, you know, without any filter, we could call a puppet back then, which was King Idris. Hmm. King Idris, uh, the, mo the choice was smart in the sense that they knew they could control the country to the brotherhood, the Sanusi brotherhood, uh, back uh, controlling most of the Cyrenaica, the eastern part of Libya. Uh, they put him as a ruler of the country. Now, what's important that, about this story is that up until the, the late uh, uh, 50s and early 60s, when you look which is part of what I do. When you look at the historical uh, archives and the documents of uh, agencies like the UN, the UN Development Plan uh, Program or the FAO, Libya was considered uh, an example of a country uh, that could not develop, that was mm. completely abandoned to itself. Levels of malnutrition, complete desert, there was nothing that could have done. Until what? Until the discovery of oil, which obviously changes the situation. Mm. The discovery of oil generates uh, a massive amount of interest by Western imperialism in the country, obviously. Uh, the foot, uh, a wider, a bigger foot, military footprint by the British and then the Americans in the two military bases, which will then be liberated uh, after the 1969. But we also have to locate Libya at that time uh, regionally, which means what? Means that uh, with these, uh, this is the time where the conflict between uh, the Arabs and the Zionists is taking place, and it's uh, and uh, and it's taking place under the Pan Arab banner. Mm. Uh, 
King Idris keeps Libya, uh, avoids to get involved into this conflict, into this war of liberation of Palestine, prefers to keep the country neutral. At the same time, the discovery of oil and the revenues that come in are not divided and shared equally with the population. So Libya finds itself with a huge amount of money, but still, you know, the a great, uh, uh, great rate of social discontent and social inequalities. So in the midst of this uh, material and uh, the ideological turmoil, a group of uh, 26 or 27 young officers belonging to the, to the academy decides to undertake what we're actually seeing happening nowadays in different countries in Africa, which is what? It's a military coup. Mm. It's a coup, but with a revolutionary spirit. Why? Because it's a bloodless military coup. Nobody stops them. And most importantly, it has an ideological uh, 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 underpinning, which is the pan-Arab ideological uh, uh, ideology. And the first words that uh, the officers pronounce is, are the ones that basically we are, yes, liberating Libya from uh, the weight and the yoke of Western imperialism, but we are also putting all our resources in, uh, in support of the Arab liberation and in support of Nasser and uh, the war against the Zionists. This uh, basically is the, and, and as a matter of fact, the same operation that took place on the 1st of September, 1969, and tomorrow, I guess it's the anniversary of this, of this revolution, which will be called Al-Fatah, the opening, the code name of this military operation was Al-Uds, which means Jerusalem, in honor of the same Palestinian cause. Right. So the, um, from the very beginning then, this, um, uh, revolution or this revolutionary coup should we say much like yeah. as you say those taking some of those taking place in um sub-saharan africa right now um yeah. this is influenced by the the pan-arabism of gamal abdul nasser um, the ruler of egypt who famously defied british imperialism and whose nationalization of the suez canal and the british failure to overturn that was a death knell for the colonial period of British imperialism. That's right. Uh, so Gaddafi takes great inspiration from that. I believe he always said that Nasser was and remained his hero. Um, and so this um, coup in 1969, um, this is something which, um, ha does it have the, a degree of enthusiasm from the masses in, in Libya, would you say? I would say that certainly did have the ideological, they, they did share the ideological underpinning of the of the revolutionary coup. Yeah, the fact that it was bloodless from the start, the fact also that by 1973, the government is uh, nationalizing the oil industry and by 1977, it starts all these economic measures to improve the lives of the most marginalized segments of society, which would then lead to the establishment of the Jamairia, definitely we could say we can say that the population was sharing you know was supporting this revolution so the as you indicated there there is a period where of course the um, the natural enormous natural resources of libya are nationalized and with that the gaddafi led government starts a process of uh, modernization in libya yeah. to i mean i i went back recently and looked at um, vid old videos and archive footage from the 70s in Libya. And it's clear that this is a society that for a while, at least, did make rapid progress. So yeah. can you talk about that period, I think mostly in the, in the 70s to the early 80s, where they, there was a real um, series of progressive developments in terms of Libyan economy and society, weren't there? Absolutely, Aleta. And I think we have to go back uh, to, to, what, to what we started with, which is uh, the complete incapacity and also unwillingness of Western uh, academics, think tanks, whatever, historians, whatever you want to call them, to take this period of revolutionary fervor and uh, experimentation uh, seriously. Mm -hmm. Because in this time, Libya is trying to rethink 
to try to rethink the relationship between state and society. It's trying to, to contribute. It's influenced by the debates on the national, international, the new international economic order. So, and as you said, as you rightly pointed out, you know, this is the period where Egypt, Egyptian government has nationalized the Suez Canal. Algeria has nationalized its oil industry. So Libya, the, what happens in Libya is influenced by at an historical time, which is the historical time of decolonization. It's not coming out of the mouth of Muammar Gaddafi. It's, uh, they are operating in a time where different political formations in the global South are trying to regain their own independence, to regain their right to development, political, economic, social. So ideological ferment definitely played a major role in guiding this uh, political experimentation of the leadership in Libya, but also the rise of, of the oil prices and revenues certainly allowed to push a sort of a, of a strategy that countered British and American imperialism at the time. So what we see in fact is that by 73 and 74, oil prices uh, have quadrupled and by 1979, the rise in domestic production, as well as the Iranian revolution, increased the income up to seven, the annual income up to 71 billion. Hmm. So what we see is that the introduction of very progressive measures inside the country. First and foremost, you know, we have all uh, the very first few years, uh, we see the nationalization, the progressive nationalization of the oil industry, which is done. It, at dif different phases and in different ways, but always with the idea that uh, li the Libyan government needed to uh, regain its sovereignty over national resources. Mm. Then there is the formula, there is the 1973 Cultural Revolution, which in a way, you know, catalyzed, it became the, the, ground, the, the ground for what later was outlined into the third universal theory, or also as known as the Green Book. In any case, what we see during this period is the inter we have also the expulsion of the Italian communities, the liberation and, and the shutdown of the military uh, bases uh, occupied by the French, by the, the Americans and the British. And by 1978, we have a project of land reform. Uh, and in 1986, land ownership was abolished altogether. Hmm. What we see also is the introduction of the concept of uh, so-called wage earners, which was supposed to replace the, sorry, the so the concept of partners, which was supposed to replace those of wage, earn, uh, of wage earners, of workers, basically. There is an attempt to create a different type of relationship between state and society, which is also marked by the introduction of state-led supermarket, uh, five-year industrial plans, the idea that Libya should try to start producing its own, you know, its own food, its own uh, technology, and, uh, and try to manufacture as much as possible, you know, in other words, trying to gain an equal footing with the global north. Mm. Now, it is. It comes without saying that uh, this was not a straightforward process. We're talking about a country that, as you rightly said, was colonized, then occupied again, and now all of a sudden they are trying to launch a program, a program of liberation. So, when judging during, we're judging this period, we are seeing a, a leadership that is zigzagging in a way, its way to what we could call uh, socialism with Libyan characteristics or. Uh, you know, state-led capitalism in a way. But what we're trying to, what we see is that Libya is trying to gain its own independence. And while it's trying to do this, it's also supporting a wide range of revolutionary, socialist, and independent movements across the, across the world. Hmm. And so, I mean, when we look at this historical time, if Libya is operating under decolonization, is also operating under the rising consolidation of US unipolar hegemony, which will eventually bring, you know, a lot of conflicts between Libya, the UK, and the US in mm -hmm. different theaters of the world. 
Well, the this period that you're referring to, the uh, period which produces um, ultimately the 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 green book and uh, the 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 radical the radicalism of that period in trying to find a new way um for uh, state formation to be conducted a new relationship between the government and the libyan masses this yeah. uh, revolutionary period coincides as you say with a broad sweep of uh, global anti-colonial revolutions which are influenced heavily both by the example of the Soviet Union and the example, of course, as well, of revolutionary China and in the Arab world of uh, NASA and, of course, right. perhaps to a lesser extent, the Ba'athists in Syria and Iraq yes. and elsewhere. So this, you get this long period of anti-colonial and, um, if not outright socialist, then socialist-influenced revolutionary uh, trends that go to probably uh, my estimation is around about the early 1980s mm -hmm. when it's my interpretation is that there is a hard turn in the policies of u.s imperialism and its block in that yeah. u.s imperialism seeks to arrest what it sees as its weakening and its decline following its defeat in vietnam and a lot of other things and seeks to reassert itself and this is what leads us into the 80s and not only the famous conflict between Libya and the United States leading to the bombing of Tripoli uh, by Reagan, but also it marks a, an escalation against Libya in terms of sanctions, in terms of essentially trying to put the country under um, economic siege. That's so right. can you can you talk about that that turn and the effects that that had upon uh, upon Libya and the the revolutionary process and how that might either continued or I think in the book you refer to the 80s as a as a period where it kind of starts to get derailed somewhat. That's right. This is uh, um, yeah. This is uh, you're right to you know to describe it as a period where these progressive policies that were initially introduced start to dwindle, you know, to become weaker in a way or to find their own limitations. Now, when we talk about the, the limitations of these policies, it comes without saying that, uh, would you ask this question to a think tank or to somebody who's also unquestioningly accept the you the western imperialist discursive way to look at the global south it's going to tell you that libya got to that point because Gaddafi was a madman mm. now we need to really try you know it's always important to go back there because it's unbelievable how this kind of narrative is so entrenched in the in the oh in the western audience that any type of uh you might call it counter narrative or just simply questioning this type of logic, uh, you know, the type that faces so much uh, pressure and backlash. Hmm. And, I, and, I, and I find this myself in my own work and in, in the whole political economy of knowledge production, if you could say that. Hmm. In any case, what we see is that uh, Libya is trying to introduce uh, this different set of... Uh, of very progressive policies, or at least trying to experiment, as you said, the new type of state formation, different uh, um, relationship between the government and the masses. But as early as 1979, uh, and this is uh, basically uh, under, the under the Carter administration, Libya is already labeled as a state sponsoring terrorism. Mm -hmm. This means what? It means that uh, the Carter administration starts sanctioning Libya. For example, the sale of uh, 400 million in trucks, aircraft and, spa and spare parts in a so-called effort to discourage uh, the country from uh, harboring or supporting international terrorists. Mm. Uh, this is followed by sanctions uh, by the, the Reagan administration that does not allow Libyan students uh, to study uh, engineering and science and sciences uh, in the U.S. So it starts basically as uh, a form of uh, 
sanction as a, as a form of a economic coercion towards Libya. But uh, this economic coercion always takes place uh, vi- uh, in uh, in alliance with uh, other forms of coercion. So sanctions are just another form of warfare basically applied on the Libyan Arab Jamaria during this time. Because mm. what we see is that uh, Libya, for example, and this is what, uh, something that I talk in the book, is uh required at a very small and uh, aviation sector yes. by and soda oil industry was heavily reliant on the technology uh of western states the moment the us imposes uh sanction or unilateral sanctions on these two key sectors, and we have to remind that by the 19, late 70s, early 80s, the US detained a monopoly on this technology, still detained, which will later change anyway, but by that time it did detain that kind of monopoly on the aviation sector, you are basically uh, hitting one of the key, two of the key sectors of the Libyan economy, aviation and oil. Mm. This comes in part with what? With the fact that there is also a war, as I said. It's not just sanction. We have to go back to what, in a way, Samir Amin, the Egyptian Marxist, used to call the two legs of imperialism, the economic leg and the political leg. Mm. So, uh, And the battleground for this uh, military confrontation between Libya and Western imperialism takes place in uh, Chad. In nineteen, uh, as and uh, in the in the mid nineteen seventies, Libya is trying to support, uh, decides to support uh, the Frolinat, this uh, this group of uh, Chadian uh, independent uh, independent uh, movement, this political uh, Chadian political movement that is trying to break from French imperialism. Mm. Initially, Libya is successful in this support. In fact, it provides military and logistical support to this group, and they are actually able, which is actually able to control the government of Chad. But the moment this threat becomes too strong and Reagan comes to power in the US, you see basically the French government and the US government intervening in what becomes a sort of major proxy war in Chad, where Mm. Libya is not just facing uh, uh, another splinter group supported by the French is is actually facing France, the United States, and its two regional allies, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Mm. So, and these are just moments of this battle that takes place because we also can talk about, uh, you know, uh, what happens in Britain uh, with uh, with the killing of uh, the so-called killing of uh, Yvonne Fletcher or other other key moments like the uh, the the never proof the never proven uh, uh, bombing uh, the by the Libyan government of the discotheque in Berlin, which would eventually lead to the bombing of Libya by the U.S. in the 19, 1986. Mm. Many other episodes that takes place with the violation of Libyan sovereignty in the Gulf of Saidra, where the Americans constantly make incursion to reclaim their control or to at least threaten what they considered, you know, the ambitions, the the threatening and mad terrorist ambitions of Muammar Gaddafi. So in this period, what we see is that Libya is trying to introduce and experiment a certain type of economic and political development. At the same time, is facing major international confrontation and geopolitical violence. And it is during this time that what were limitations in a process become slowly major contradictions in society. Because what happens with this warfare on Libya is that by delegitimizing the revolution uh, on a foreign level, you are actually also delegitimizing uh, the, the same government in the eyes of the population. And this is where we have to see constantly the interpenetration of the foreign and national, the lo- the you know, the global and the and the national, which are constantly connected to one another. And and in this way, what we see start the rising of opposition. Just to pick up on uh, what you were saying there, um, you're talking about the um, the 
the the global and the the national uh, interacting with each other to create a essentially new problems within what had been a, a revolutionary process. And yeah. in the book, you talk about this period in the 1980s, leading to um, you mentioned there the growth in oppositional group, uh, the growth in oppositional groups, yeah. but also um, that the the revolution starts to run into problems internally because yeah. of partly because of external pressure, but also some internal limitations leading to um, yeah. various officials building essentially corrupt empires within the Libyan state, yeah. um, disillusionment uh, with the revolution amongst the masses, and that this combines together to create uh, an atmosphere that is um, less hopeful and more repressive because the Libyan state is having to respond to this change balance, balance of forces. And by the end of the 80s, this has gotten much worse as the you see the disappearance of the Soviet Union. Um, yes. And that was the uh, even even for countries like Libya, which were not um uh, by any means um purely a soviet um style uh, government but still this was the center yes. of global revolution and its disappearance seems to me to have a, had a devastating impact on the anti-colonial movement so can you talk about that period and the, the period end, end with the collapse of the soviet union and how this impacted upon the processes in libya yeah, so um, just going back uh, because I, I forgot to mention something that I think it might be might be interesting for uh, for those who are listening to us uh, in the current research, which obviously is connected to my to my book that I'm doing, and I started delving a little uh, much because whereas in this book my intent was to discuss these events with Libyans themselves, mm -hmm. I have now been uh, exploring much more this, the U.S governmental archives, especially the State Department and the CIA. So what you see in these archives is that uh, the, the, uh, the constant uh, uh, appearance of three main preoccupations by di different various US presidential administration from the 1970s to the early 90s. And uh, the, these are first and foremost anti-colonial and regional solidarity. So the way Libya was trying to support a certain type of project, of national liberation project in the Arab region and in Africa, and also elsewhere, including the IRA. Hmm. Uh, specific attention is constantly posed on Libya's opposition to the Zionist occupation of Palestine. That hmm. is really a key like uh, uh, interest of the US administration. Then you have the project the, of economic nationalism, if we could call it, in a way, uh, basically, you see uh, the preoccupations by the US on the way Libya is using this oil, which is tightly connected both to what we already discussed, and finally, the proximity to the USSR, to the Soviet Union. Now, this is interesting because uh, uh, the Libyan government itself did not want to assiduously collaborate with the Soviet Union, but, uh, you know, the two states, these two political formations become sort of natural allies at a certain moment because of their common interest in trying to, you know, to undo, to delink from Western imperialism. Although there were, we have to point out, many also differences. For example, the USSR had just praised the Sadat uh, peace agreement, the United Nations to do whatever they want. And this year, of which Libya is also one of the victims, countries that we could list thousands of countries here, Iraq, Som uh, Somalia, Yugoslavia, many of them. This is the period in which the UN basically be is completely hijacked by Western imperialism. Hmm. And this is the period where Lockerbie, becomes a, a key moment. Yes. A, a key moment because uh, basically Libya is put under United Nations multilateral sanctions for over a decade without any proof that Libya was actually behind this attack, yes. which killed, if I am correct, uh, 
almost 200 or 300 people in the skies of Lockerbie in Scotland. Yes. And uh, just to interject there for a moment, but many yeah. of the, the families of um, those killed still insist to this day that um, um, Al-Megrahi, wasn't it, um, who yeah. was imprisoned um, as a result of this, there was never any real proof that he had done it. Uh, that a lot of it was based on this like very dubious evidence that had been obtained via connections in Malta. That's right. Uh, and the 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 actual reality was that it was it was probably other parties, namely um possibly the government of Iran, um taking revenge for the shooting down of one of their airliners by the United States, That's the right. USS Vincennes incident in the a, a year or so before. But because they needed Iran, the Iranian government to acquiesce to their war against Iraq, they needed a scapegoat. And yeah. because Libya was more isolated and they they felt like they could essentially use Gaddafi as, um, to use the English expression, as a whipping boy. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely right. And uh, and you know I I also I have to say there is a, if I'm correct a British scholar who wrote a, a very interesting book his name is uh, James Bannon if I'm if I remember correct is uh, Kevin Bannon Kevin Bannon who, who basically in, a, in his scholarly analysis he raises two major points when it comes to Lockerbie first he challenges the decision of the Scottish court to convict McGrath. Uh, because of incomplete and really discord, very discord, discordant statements from a key witness, which you mentioned, uh, you know, a Maltese shopkeeper, Tony Gaucci, mm. which later was paid a reward by the U.S. Department of Justice of two million dollars. <laughs> and I mean, this is this is absolutely wild. I mean, and uh, and at the end, in two thousand one, McGrath is uh, is convicted. But for ten for for a decade, Libya since 1992 is uh, is under the weight of sanctions. So going back to your questions, what happens during this period? Well, during this period, we see that uh, if these progressive policies had witnessed a sort of uh, change in the late 1980s, by the 1990s, you see the the our military defeat becomes also an ideological defeat. It really translates into an ideological defeat among a certain group of the elites. Mm. This means that part of the elites now is not willing to support the revolutionary uh, project anymore. This project is seen as anachronistic. Mm -hmm. The idea is that we should try what we can to liberalize our economy. To uh, We should try to to you know to uh, to have a rapprochement with the west according to their terms and all this idea of pan-arabism pan-africanism are seen as uh, something belonging to the past they don't make sense anymore mm. on uh, on uh, an economic material level what you see is that uh, with the withdrawal and the gradual uh, you know abandonment of this uh, progressive policies, the introduction of the so-called infita, which already had the liberalization of the economy, which already had started in 1987 and continues in the 1980s, uh, socioeconomic inequalities uh, spiral much more, augment their rise in Libya during this period. And so it becomes also, all these contradictions become also a fertile ground for the appearance of Islamist and uh, so-called opposition groups. But now, as you, I'm sure you very well know, when we talk about Islamist opposition in Libya, we have to go to Manchester. Unfortunately, yes, uh, where I'm sitting right now, in fact, <laughs> um, not too far away from where the Abedi family, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Manchester bomber, the man who ba bombed the Manchester arena, uh, Salman yeah. Abedi, and his father and brother uh, lived and were his father was a key member of a group called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, That's right. um, who were, I, I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, Matteo, had a very close relationship with uh, the British Foreign Intelligence Service, MI6, yeah. and were cultivated, I think it's fair to say, for a long time by uh, the British intelligence services, 
with the idea that when the opportunity arose that they were going to be put back into Libya to secure the destruction of the uh, of the of the Gaddafi led government and they were kept in Manchester for that specific reason. By the way, along with a lot of other exiles from um, reactionary groups across the uh, the Arab world, hmm. um, we can also look at the role that the uh, the MI6 and the British government played in the mass recruitment of foreign jihadists to fight in Afghanistan. London was one of the key centers of recruitment for that. Wow. So this is a game that the British government has been playing for a very, very long time. And so when um, the war against Gaddafi started, all of these characters were essentially uh, released from the government uh, control regime, who, which had been imposed on them, and with British government assistance, was sent back to Libya to fight against Gaddafi. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So to to go back then, uh, Matteo, to talk about um, the the changes in the in in the Libyan government, and the this is a uh, again Libya is being swept along with a what I would term a global reactionary trend um, <laughs> after 1991. I would argue it starts a lot earlier than that uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the 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 origins, but mm -hmm. certainly with the the collapse of the Soviet Union. The turn towards um, what I would call revisionism uh, in China, um, you get a an, an abandonment of revolutionary struggle on, on almost a global basis. Absolutely. And Libya is, of course, as you say, no exception to that. And the Libyan ruling um, group um, starts to look for ways out of the of getting sanctioned. Um, yeah. So they they admit guilt in the Lockerbie bombing, even though there's very little evidence. Yes. They agree to pay compensation again with very little evidence. Um, they and this this culminates, I think, in the the deal between the Libyan government and the British and the American imperialists that was supposed to relate to the Libyan surrender of uh, supposed weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that and like what was the what was the actual motivation of the the Libyan government in pursuing that deal was it as you said to try and escape sanctions and you you said in the book you make the comparison that in the 70s the UAE look, um and the Gulf <laughs> states looked enviously upon Libya and now in the 90s and 2000s the Libyans look enviously upon the Gulf states and it's it's in the person of um, Saif al Gaddafi that yeah. the modernizers find their their voice within the ruling group. Yeah, there are uh, several changes during this time, as you were rightly pointing out. Uh, one of them is precisely that during this period, uh, uh, Libya is heavily affected by the sanctions. The oil industry, the oil infrastructure, the the depreciation of the currency. Uh, the the not the difficulties the blockage uh, of uh, of uh, of the international community uh, on Libya to enter and access its uh, foreign reserves, and uh, also there is the the fact that many foreign intermediaries were ready to exploit the geopolitical situation, forcing Libya to pay additional cost up to four hundred percent, you know, for the delivery of of these technological uh, spare parts that the country needed. And then you had the internal inflation going up to 200% that you know the working classes were facing in Libya. So I mean, basically these striving contradictions in inside the country do not reflect just an authoritarian uh, man which was ruling from 1969 up to 2011. It's a periodization of history, which any Marxist should be able to do, which shows that Libya starts as a progressive country. It faces enormous internal, but uh, most importantly, geopolitical difficulties, because this is a uh, a really a counter revolution taking place from the start of you know of the neoliberal reforms we could if not earlier and uh, and so what you see is a, a split into the elites and the rise of the so called reformist so uh, the reformist uh, the reformist elite was uh, a group of uh, very well connected people uh uh Added by one of the sons of Muammar Gaddafi, Saif al-Islam, 
Saif al-Islam basically promised to the population what my book traces, which is this idea of turning Libya into Dubai with this program of uh, uh, Libya Red, the, the, the Lib Libyas of tomorrow. Uh, Saif starts basically touching upon all these very uh, hot and very divisive issues in Libyan society, which the government uh, had for a long time decided not to uh, um, to discuss, uh, to face vis-a-vis uh, -vis the population. I mean, so during the 90s is the period where we can see a sort of a much more of, a, you know, the moment you see less prog economic progressive policies, the more the internal violence and the legitimacy of the government goes up. And obviously the, legit the legitimacy of the government vis-a-vis -vis the population goes down. So this is where you start seeing all these contradictions, you know, opening up and, uh, you know, like uh, thriving much more inside Libyan society. What yeah. is important during this time is that uh, uh, one of the stories that came up in the book when I was talking so much with, uh, with my interlo interlocutors was that, uh, uh, you know, in the 1970s, the Sheikh of, du of, uh, of the UAE, Sheikh Zayed, came to Libya. He wanted to Dubai to look like Tripoli. Dubai was a desert at the time, uh, now it's the other way around. How did we reach this point? So the perception of Libyans, despite Libya up to 2011, never reached the level of poverty and misery that Egypt or Tunisia were facing, was nonetheless, you know, the perception was nonetheless one that was telling them, why are we not like the countries of the Gulf? Why are we not as developed as these countries? It's obviously, you know, it is a geopolitical, uh, it is a geopolitical question which influenced the national questions as well. So, because the idea that Libya had oil and as, was not as developed as the countries of the Gulf had little to do with the fact that Libya was not using its revenues in a smart or programmatic manner, but it had. Partly with that, but it had much more to do with the fact that uh, the Gulf countries were, you know, reactionary regimes tightly connected with Western imperialism, British and the US mostly, uh, and uh, Libya had not decided to go uh, to take that route. So mm. 2003 comes and the Libyan government decides to uh, renounce to the program of uh, weapon of mass destruction. Now, it is well known now in the literature that everybody knew that Libya did, did not have weapons of mass destruction. He might probably had, he uh, might have had uh, a chemical plant where they were trying to build something, but definitely not, to, he never reached the level of possessing weapons of mass destruction. But this is a key moment because uh, the Bush administration needs a victory and, sh and needs to show that uh, what happened in Iraq had actually a domino effect. So they were ready to, to you know, to, uh, to cash on the decision of the Libyan government to renounce and to make the statement. At the same time, the Libyan government has changed its uh, approach. And this is where we have to go a little bit back to the sanctions period, because uh, there is a tendency to think that Libya, you know, was uh, abandoned its revolutionary outlook, which is rightly posed in a way, rightly said, uh, you know, as also as you were mentioning before, but the strategy start, the, the not the revolutionary strategies, but the strategies to build a different project of independence, uh, national and economic liberation, change internationally. And uh, in a way, as one of my colleagues, uh, you know, uh, Corina Malin made me uh, realize, when we look at Libya and his idea and the idea of the Libyan government to build a project for the African Union back in the 1990s, what we are seeing is a sort of, uh, you know, uh, a precursor of what would become later, you know, what we today call multipolarity in a way. Mm. Because uh, Libya basically realized that we cannot fight imperialism with violence anymore. And this is what happens basically in the 1990s. Libya renounces to support military, you know, 
liberation movements and revolutionary movements with weapons and violence. But they start adopting a different strategy, an economic strategy, one that tries to, you know, to connect with African states precisely because the, the pan-Arab uh, dream and ideology had, uh, uh, had faded away with, uh, with, uh, with the numerous, uh, you know, military defeats that had taken place. And so Libya becomes much more organically connected to Africa and uh, develops these projects of unity, which was launched in CERT. So this is uh, also, you know, to, to close the circle. So you have two different elites during this period, during this time. On the one hand, you have Saif al-Islam with his reformist group trying to turn Libya geopolitically closer to the West and turn Libya into a possible Dubai. On the other hand, you have another part of the elites that they are still somewhat tied to this uh, uh, revolutionary or somehow independentist uh, nationalist uh, ideology uh, and program, which they are trying to build a, a, pro a project for Africa in which Libya is spearheading, as a spearheading role into this. And so you have what I describe in the book is that basically these contradictions that is exploding inside the countries that one part is dreaming about it's dreaming about dubai but another one is building cert mm. and uh, you know when you see what happened actually to cert in 2011 probably you know there was actually some grounds some uh, some materiality to this dream that was actually being uh, you know in taking place well the the end point for the um the the uh, the the Libyan uh, revolution shall we say uh, the, the brutal ending in 2011 um shows us and to my mind that the even though the imperialists were prepared to uh, sign a uh, convenient agreement um 8 years before um they yes. were they were not prepared to ever really change their plans with regard to Libya. And that when the opportunity did arise to uh, overthrow Gaddafi and subject Libya to um, unrestricted looting, essentially, yes. Um, yes. they grabbed that opportunity with both hands. And this um, did, did this, um, according to the research that you've done, did this surprise the the rulers uh, of Libya, the the ruling group, that the they thought they had some kind of rapprochement with the with the U.S. and the British and the French, and that this was cast aside so quickly, and that uh, that they were faced with essentially uh, an invasion by the imperialists using a proxy force. So, did they think that they'd achieved the a new relationship with the West, and how surprised were they when this turned out to be an illusion? I would argue that uh, they were certainly surprised in the initial stages uh, of uh, of you know of how the and that and the speed with which this uh, invasion, this uh, regime change operation took place. Definitely, that surprises them. I would, I would argue, but at the same time, what you can see is that uh, precisely the speed with which this operation took place. If you think about it, the the, the protests start on the seventeenth of February two thousand eleven, and by in a month's time, the UN has already imposed a no-fly zone over the country, which, mm. which is shocking. If you know, under the narrative, obviously that was. Uh, definitely allowed by by you know think tanks and academics as well of libya being a rogue state because everybody started believing that Gaddafi was going to to massacre or wipe off the hurt the city of benghazi something that he had never done before hmm. uh so i would say that uh, certainly this uh uh this operation in the initial stages they were taken aback there were in fact uh, attempts from the elites, especially, uh, you know, Saif al-Islam, especially Saif al-Islam, who was very well connected to Western uh, to Western countries, uh, to try to deal, to, me to mediate with the situation, maybe finding a solution, trying to have uh, his father, uh, you know, uh, relinquish his role and uh, go in exile. Uh, 
even the, Af the African Union at the same time was never allowed to intervene and mediate. Uh, but at the same time, what you see is that immediate defection of numerous uh, uh, key members, and some of them, which also had traveled to Paris in the months before everything had started, like uh, the chief of the intelligence and uh, Moussa Kousa, who immediately mm. ended up in Qatar afterwards. So, I mean, in a way, it is hard for us to assess uh, on the basis of released documents uh, or uh, testimonies that uh, this was uh, planned earlier on. What we know anyway is the outcome of history. And history is our, you know, is our weapon as Marxists and also, you know, as politically engaged people that, you know, can understand what was the outcome of this. And the outcome was regime change, was the destruction of Libya. It had nothing to do with democracy or freedom. And unfortunately, what we see is that uh, this is probably the most painful part is the ideological uh, support that the local population gave even to the NATO intervention. So mm. in other words, that uh, the infiltration of these ideas uh, that the regime was authoritarian, that it needed to go, and it required a NATO bombing to actually uh, bring democracy to the people. And uh, this is where I think uh, it's uh, imperialism as uh, this, uh, as a weapon, you know, really needs to be fought on so many levels, materially, ideologically, culturally, you know, on, on all its different legs. Uh, for us to understand you really the damage that can do to countries, uh, you know, of the global south, but also us as Westerners that, you yes. know, we constantly fail to realize when is the time not to support NATO. Mm. Well, uh, I would argue the time not to support NATO is constantly. Um, yes. <laughs> you know. yes. Given, given the record. But, uh, Matteo, uh, we're out of time for today. I think this has been a very interesting discussion. I would encourage everybody to read Matteo's book, Everyday Politics in uh, the Libyan Arab Jamaharia. Uh, Matteo, uh, we've left this on a particular note. So what I'd like to do is to invite you back on some time to have a, a, a discussion more on the lines that we, we left off here, which is the um, the ideological pull of imperialism yeah. on uh, those who are subjected to it. Um, yeah. So you conclude you 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 put in the book that the 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 promises of the West were believed by many in Libya. So I'd like to have a further discussion with yourself at some point soon with regard to the actual events of 2011 and afterwards. If that's if that's good for you, that's good. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for joining us today. It only leaves for me to say farewell until next time, and I will leave you with some very appropriate music.